The last time you will have engaged very much with us around the subject was nearly six months ago, or around about six months ago. We had a congregational meeting in September out in the church hall. Uh, You might remember being there. Uh, We were delighted with the turnout. Uh, We were delighted with the level of engagement uh, from people to willingness to talk about stuff. We were delighted with the spirit of unity that there was, even uh, as people expressed sometimes slightly different views. So we're just very grateful uh, as we look back uh, for your participation in that event six months ago. We told you at the end of that meeting that we were going to go and start a conversation with Belfast City Council planning. We did. Uh, We did that a few weeks after the event. Um, We brought them our proposals, uh, particularly a, a new build proposal, Uh, We thought we'd ask for as much permission as we can possibly get, whether we choose to to use uh, it or not. What we discovered was that a new build proposal met with some resistance uh, from the planners. Although our building's not listed, there are arguments for saying that the the front of it there on the Newtonards Road, it adds something to the the local streetscape, and therefore just to demolish that would be a a loss for Ballyhackamore. So we were we were sent away with um, those words ringing in our ears. It meant that our architect has been busy, uh, both before and since Christmas, working up a series of proposals that have more or less of our front elevation of the building still included in them. So that's, that's where the time has been going. It's not that we haven't been doing anything. It's just that the work that we have been doing hasn't been very visible to you. We plan to go back in a couple of weeks' time, towards the end of March, back to the planners with these new uh, proposals. Uh, you might want to pray for that, just an open door, uh, a a leading uh, for for the the folks there. We we believe very much that God can use uh, all public servants to help us discern the journey he wants to take us on. Today, I just want to tell you all that, quickly get you updated, but also uh, to, to invite your involvement There are a couple of things I need from you. One is to wake up to this, okay? Be attentive. It's back on. Press the the go button in your mind for buildings because we do have to engage now and think about it. We're going to come back week by week with five-minute slots to, to just remind you of some things but also bring you further on the journey that we've been before. Um, Noah, the, the final slides about the counting the cost... Yeah, you've got those up there. Really, if you think about a building project and how a congregation engages with it, it's quite funny. We talk about the the project, uh, you know, we're going to build a church, we're going to design a church, we're going to build a church. No, the architect designs it, the builder builds it. Our role in it is this one, isn't it? Okay, so... If the architect plays their part and the builder offers to play their part, but we aren't ready or are willing to play our part, then the project doesn't happen. We're an important part of the team. So I'm not going to talk a lot about uh, 
money today, but I, I do need to, we've talked about it before, I do need to remind you. So there's two things you can be thinking of. One is to begin giving to our building project today. Just change, uh, you know, change your giving to the, the building, the property fund that already exists. And the other thing you, you can do, because anyone would need to do it probably, is to make plans. Most of us don't feel that we have endless amounts of surplus money. So we maybe have to go and have a, a look at our, our finances and, and begin to make plans for how we might give during the duration of this project. Folks, that's, that's really the end of my update. What I would love you to do is two things. Talk to us. If you have any questions or comments as we go into, back into a more active phase, um, you'll, you'll see on the, the letter that's there, uh, there's an email address. You can email us or talk to, to Billy, Billy Dixon, who's leading our, our subcommittee looking at all of this. So talk to us. Tell us how you're thinking about it, what's on your mind. But talk to, talk to God about it too. Be praying about the, the project as a whole and be praying about your part in it, your involvement. Thank you. To God's Word together. I'm going to read just a short passage today. It's from 1 John chapter 3. I'd invite you to look it up. It's on page 1226 in the Pew Bible. 1 John 3, 1226. Although you're looking that up, I'm not going to read from the NIV, the, the version that our Pew Bible's in. Um, I'm going to read instead from the New American Standard Bible. It gives a slightly different wording, and it'll help us prepare for Jerry coming to teach in just a moment. John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the word of God. Jerry, come and share with us what God has laid on your heart. Thank you. And to know that we are deeply loved by God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I know this is one Sunday morning, quickly upon us and quickly it will pass. But I pray there will be things that will transpire this morning that will rattle around in our minds and hearts for years and years to come. And that we will be gripped by this great truth that you love us. I know, Father, that it's ridiculous to think that one person could stand in a room full of people and say things that could connect with every heart in that room. I know that each heart here 
has different challenges, joys and sorrows. And to think that one person's word can make a difference, it's difficult to understand. I know that I offer crumbs, but I know one time, Father, your son took not much more than crumbs, five loaves and two fish. And he blessed them and he broke them and he multiplied them and everybody left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that in our midst this day? Would he take the crumbs that are offered and let each person hear something applied to their heart by the Holy Spirit so that they would know that they are loved by you. You gave them just what they needed in this hour. And so we ask this in Christ's name, to see his name glorified and see our own sense of his love for us inflamed with wonder. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I think there's many things that can distract us from the love of God in our life. And just developmentally, as we go through life, we pick up messages along the way. I'm a professor at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and my best friend is a theater professor there. His name is Mark Lewis. He's a brilliant Shakespeare actor. He used to act and perform on national television with regularity, and he came to Wheaton to teach students. Mark was the eighth-born child in his family. He was born in Argentina on the mission field. I knew his father. He was a good man. But his father was on the fundamentalist side of evangelicalism, a little bit on the rigid side, and had no understanding of a person with artistic proclivities. And Mark was an artist. When he was six years old, he wanted to communicate to his parents how much he loved them in a way that was according to his hardwiring, And so one day when the parents were gone and one of the older siblings was supposed to be watching him, and you know how that goes, he got out his crayons, his colored pencils, his paints, and he spent the whole day painting a mural up the back white wall of their house. And he thought to himself, when dad and mom come home and see that, they're going to know how much I love him. He started thinking they're going to invite the neighbors and the relatives in to see this work of art this expression of my love for them. didn't quite go that way when the parents came home. He said it wasn't that he was so disappointed that that he got spanked, but he was so sad that they didn't see what he was trying to say. Years later, he was directing the autumn play at Wheaton College, and his days went with getting up early in the morning, helping his wife get the kids ready for school, coming to school, teaching classes, grading papers, meeting with students, having faculty governance meetings, coming home at the end of a wearying day for an hour for a meal and to relax before he went back for rehearsals that went long into the night. This one evening, after about three and a half, four weeks of this, he came home and his daughter was standing at a chair, his daughter Ruby, she was about six. She was standing on a chair at the sink with a plastic basin in the sink and the water was going and the water was splashing all over everywhere. Mark's thinking, I came home to rest and i got to clean up this mess. He says, Ruby, honey, what are you doing? And she bursts into tears. Mark's wife, Mary, said, Mark, she knew you were weary. She just put a basin in the sink to get some water so she could wash your feet. He remembered his own experience as a six-year-old. And he said, oh, Ruby, honey, I'm so sorry. 
He helped her with the basin. He said it was the coldest water he ever put his feet in in his life. And he said, you know, my parents didn't get it right. I got it half right. Maybe one day Ruby will get it all right. Why are we moved by that story? Because we've all been the one who was misunderstood and picked up some message that caused us to doubt whether we were loved. And we've also been the one who did the doubting of somebody else's good intention. Donald Miller, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, had a sequel to that book called Searching for God Knows What. In that book, he said he was always on the fringe of his group at school. He longed to be on the inside. But he said he was always on the fringe, and one day he was at home, and he was reading a poem, and he liked the poem, so he memorized it. And about two or three weeks later, somebody said something at school, and he says, oh, that reminds me of a poem, and he recited it from memory, and all of his friends said, Miller, you are smart. You are really smart. He said it was the first time he ever felt good about himself. And he said two things followed. Number one, he started memorizing more poetry after that. And number two, he realized he needed to gain a sense of himself from somebody outside of himself, but everybody he looked to was as insecure as he was. People, there's only one person who can give you a proper sense of yourself. And that is the God of the universe who loves you so deeply. This is where our text takes us today. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you that you should be called children of God. There are a lot of people who have problems with father texts in Scripture. Maybe they've had a bad father experience. My own experience working with college students virtually all of my adult life is that for every one person I see who's offended by the father passages of God, I've met nine who have had bad father experiences who take to those passages like duck to water because they long to have the vacuum filled. This text says, God, this father loves you. It's interesting to me that we've all had fathers and some have done well. And some of us who have been fathers, we know that we haven't always done well. But there's one father who always gets it right. There was a 17th century English preacher named Thomas Fuller. And one time he was doing a devotion on Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. I think sometimes if you have time to do a a devotion on a genealogy, you've probably got too much time on your hands. But nevertheless, this is what he wrote. Having made a discovery in the genealogy of Jesus, four changes in four successive generations. Lord, I find the genealogy of my Savior strangely checkered with four remarkable changes in four immediate generations. Rehoboam begat Abiah, that is, a bad father begat a bad son. Abiah begat Asa, that is, a bad father, a good son. Asa begat Jehoshaphat, that is, a good father, a good son. Jehoshaphat begat Joram, that is, a good father, a bad son. I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be handed on, and that's bad news for me. But I see also that actual impiety is not always hereditary, and that is good news for my son. You have to appreciate the tenderness of that. We do the best we can, 
But there's one person who always gets it right. This God who loves you always gets it right. People, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Most of my academic career has been working with the writings of C.S. Lewis. I've lectured on him in 78 universities in 18 different countries. I've been studying him for 50 years, and I've been teaching courses on him for 40 years. I've got about eight books on C.S. Lewis. And I just need you to know, I don't always agree with him. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said he thought pride was the great sin. I disagree with him. St. Augustine, in his commentary on Psalm 19, also said he thought pride was a great sin. So if I disagree with Augustine and Lewis, I'm probably wrong. But bear with me for a moment and see if I can make my case. They thought that pride was the axiomatic sin around which all other sins constellate. That pride was the mainspring sin that generated all other sins. I'm not doubting that pride can generate sin. But is it the main sin? Had Lewis and Augustine said they thought pride was the greatest sin, like it would be the apex of a pyramid as the greatest point in that pyramid, I could have signed on, but that's not what they meant. But go back to the pyramid for a second. If, in fact, pride is the apex of the pyramid, what's beneath it? Certainly, things would be far more substantive till you got to the base. What precedes pride? I'm not talking about pride of a good job that you do or the pride you take in your child when they do something well at school. I'm talking about that form of pride that exhibits itself pretentiously, makes itself look better than it really is. What precedes that? What's beneath that apex? And if you're anything like me, my my guess is it's probably insecurity or fear. You want to make yourself look better because you're afraid if people knew what you were really like, they might reject you. If that's true, then beneath that, maybe at the very base of this pyramid, the scriptures give us some information. It says in 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. If perfect love casts out fear, a corollary can be drawn from that that imperfect love breeds anxiety. You and I have probably never been loved perfectly by another human being. The reason why I suspect that that's so is I'm pretty sure I've never loved perfectly another human being. And all of us at some level are saddled with the burden of anxiety, longing to be loved perfectly. And here we have in the text the reminder that probably the greatest sin is to live in neglect of this love that God has given us so freely. Maybe I can exhibit the idea. I saw a movie years ago on an airplane. I hate to recommend movies that you see on airplanes because you don't know how much they might have sanitized them from the bad stuff. But this particular movie had a point towards the end where I found myself weeping on the airplane. I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs. I live in my head. I'm an academic. I'm not supposed to cry. But this movie moved me deeply. And when I see a film or read a book, I like to 
enter into that world. I don't like to think critically about it until I've come to the end and then begin to ask myself the question, why did that move me so deeply? The movie I have in mind is The Notebook. Everybody laughs whenever I mention that book because it's a, or that movie because it's a chick flick and I'm not supposed to like chick flicks, but I want you to know I'm secure enough in my masculinity I can watch a chick flick with security. The movie starts out with this old man played by James Garner coming to a nursing home. It looks like it's the memory care unit and he starts to read a story to an elder woman played by Gina Rollins, and she's very standoffish, and the impression made is that she has dementia. While she's standoffish and orderly says it's okay, he comes and reads stories here every day. And the impression made is that this nice old man in his retirement goes to the memory care unit and reads stories, and the whole movie is this man in present time reading this story to this elderly woman and the flashback of the story that's being told. The, the whole story set in a town, uh, a small town outside of Charleston, South Carolina. It's a town on a lake, and there's a family that's come to vacation there for the summer. And the impression made is that they are a very wealthy family, that they have the resources to do something like this. They have a young girl. There's a young boy who grew up in that town. And the odds of any kind of relationship occurring between these two is almost impossible. She's wealthy, he's poor. She comes from an intact family, but very pretentious. He comes from a broken family, the mother's missing. We don't know if she died or if she abandoned the family, but there's brokenness there and not pretense. He, he has a high school diploma, and he likes reading the poetry of Walt Whitman, but she has the best education all of her parents' money can afford. And the parents are not happy about this relationship that's developing over the summer, and so many things count against this relationship ever working. And finally, the parents get upset about the girl being there, and so they leave earlier than they intended to leave just to get her out of there and the boy weeping runs after the car and yells out I'll write to you every day and the girl weeping hears that but so does the mother and every day at the mailbox she's there first to grab and intercept those letters and the girl never gets them she said he said he was going to write to me every day and he doesn't and he wrote to her dutifully and never hears back from her Circumstances become more complex as World War II breaks out and separates them further by circumstance and geography. And it's at this moment in the film the director tips his hand and shows us that this is this old man and this old woman's story. And he comes every day to tell her of their love story. Even though so many things counted against it working, it had worked and they had married. And when she slips into dementia, he comes and communicates his love to her. Towards the end of the movie, there's a scene after he's been reading the story to her all day long. And they're sitting, having a nice dinner at this hospital. Tablecloth, rose in a bud vase, candle burning, record player playing all the music that had been so much a part of their relationship. And the whole environment pulsates out to this woman, the love of this man for her. And he finishes the story and she looks at him and she says, that's the most beautiful love story I've ever heard in my life. 
And it sounds so familiar. And cognition washes across her face and she says, it's our story, isn't it? He says, yes. She says, how much time do we have? He says, last time it was only five minutes. She asks, how are the children? That's a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. She says, tell them I love them. He says, I will. And as the music plays, she says, hold me. Can we dance? And they begin slowly to dance across that hospital floor. And as quickly as she came into cognition, she falls out of cognition, finds herself in the arms of a stranger, and begins to scream. The orderlies have to come in to sedate her. James Garner's character standing there watching it all, weeping, biting his knuckle. And it was that moment when I lost it. What was it about that scene? And I realized this is all of our story. We are all part of a remarkable love story. And constantly we are being told how much we're loved. In our environment, in our world, and so on. In the scriptures, over and over and over again. Though there's so many things that seem to count against us, this God loves us. And we have those moments where we come into cognition, and it's so sweet and glorious. And then some little inconvenience occurs, and we fall out of love as quickly as we fell into love. And I think when I saw James Garner biting his knuckle, it was a window into the very heart of God who loves us so deeply. This text, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. It says in this text, in verse 2, that one day we're going to be like Christ. Never like him in his deity, that's an impossibility. The created could never be like the uncreated. The finite could never be like the omniscient, the omnipresent, the omnipotent. One day we're going to be like Christ in his perfected humanity. I I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I am weary of all my imperfections. I am weary of my sin. I'm weary of my shortcomings and my misunderstandings. I long to be fixed. And this text tells me one day it's going to happen. We'll be finitely perfect before the infinitely perfect God. Imagine the prospects of that. If you knew zero to a hundred bits of information about God, how much more is there still to know? An infinite amount. If you knew zero to a thousand bits or zero to a billion bits, how much more is there still to know? An infinite amount. When we get to heaven, there will never be a moment where we can't learn more about him in awe and wonder. I have a dear friend, and we've had a 30, almost 40 year debate as to what our first word will be when we get to heaven. He, he says he thinks it's going to be, oh, oh, now I see why I had that horrible financial reversal. Oh, now I see why I lost that loved one so dear to me. Oh, now I see why my heart was broken by that person who raised my expectations so highly. Oh, oh. That's not bad, but I think he's wrong. I think our first word when we get to heaven is going to be, Wow! Wow, I didn't know that about him. Wow, I didn't know that either. Wow! I'm amazed by this. Now, I, I, I don't know, I could be wrong. 
Maybe it'll be, oh, wow, I don't know for sure. It doesn't say explicitly in Scripture, but I think we're going to be amazed when we finally are finitely perfect before the infinitely perfect God. You have to take this completely by faith now. But when I was in college, I was an athlete. I played American football. And I got a horrible concussion one time. And I cried out to God, Lord, please don't let this happen. This is my senior year. Please take this away. And I immediately went clear. I played some form of American football until I was 44 years old and never had another concussion. But I remember that moment when everything was foggy and then it went clear. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to realize we've lived our lives on this earth concussed. And finally, it's clear. It says, one day we'll be like him. But what about now when we're not like him? And the text says this. And this underscores how deeply we're loved by him. It says, beloved now, concussed as we are, goofy as we are, messed up as we are, beloved now, he calls us his children. Beloved now, we are children of God. What's that like? Let me see if I can explain. When we started having children, my wife and I went to seminars and we read books. We tried to be, um, uh, you know, parents who were really being responsible about these things. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think anybody's very life-skilled. I don't think anybody's ever ready to get married. If you waited till you were, you'd miss out on those joys. And I don't think certainly anybody's ever ready to have children. If you waited till you were, the whole human race would end this generation. But nevertheless, we have children and we try and figure it out. And so we were trying to be responsible. We tried to come up with a plan for discipline of our children. The plan was basically this. If, if the children did something that was not life-threatening, we'd give them a timeout for as many minutes as they were old. So if you're three years old and you have a three-minute timeout, that gives new meaning to the word eternal. And then also, if they did something that was egregious, played in the streets when they didn't understand about cars, it could cause damage to their life and limb, or pushed a brother or sister down the staircase, well, these would be things where they might get a spanking. And we'd say to our children, what did we tell you not to do? They would tell us. We'd say, what did we say we would do if you did that? You, you said you'd spank me, Daddy. And I'd say, but do you, do you think I love you any less because you did that? No, Dad. Is there anything you could ever do that would cause me to stop loving you? No, Dad. But am I happy you did that? No, Dad. And then I'd administer my loving kindness to their hindquarters. I never disciplined my kids without afterwards giving them a hug and hugging them until they were happy. You know what my children would do after they were disciplined? 100% of the time, they'd turn around like that for the hug. And I wanted them to learn also to go like that to God when there'd be times when things wouldn't go so well. With my three boys, it was no problem. I'd hug them. We'd hold each other. We'd start swaying. Maybe we'd start singing. Then in time, I'd tickle them and send them on their way. With my daughter, it was a little bit difficult. She would turn around like this for the hug, and every orifice in her face would have leaked. Her eyes would have leaked. Her nose would have run. Her mouth would have drooled. And she's turned around like this for the hug. And, and I'm tempted to say to her, Alicia, you know what? You go take a shower, get cleaned up a bit. You come back, and I'll have that hug for you. But it would communicate something I wouldn't want to communicate. 
So I would take her in my arms. She'd put her head on my shoulder and leave evidence of her DNA all over my clothes. And I learned at that time that every father who loves his child bears the stain because he loves the child. We don't have it together yet, but beloved, now we're his children. Let me see if I can put it in a different light. When, when we were young and having children, my wife was a, a stay-at-home mom. We were living on kind of a shoestring. Things were tight economically. Um, she hated maternity clothes. And they didn't sell maternity clothes in cutesy maternity shops back then. It was usually in a dark corner of some women's department store. They didn't want people to know probably they even sold these kinds of clothes. And she had a couple of outfits, and there were some other women at the church we attended that had some outfits, and this wardrobe seemed to go around the church like this. And I can remember one time coming up to this blonde-haired woman after a worship service and putting my arm around her and looking over. It wasn't my wife. She was in my wife's clothes, but it wasn't my wife. She hated those clothes, and when she got out of those maternity clothes, she couldn't wait to go out and buy two new outfits. We always tried to save up for two new outfits— Have you ever seen a new mother with a new baby where she's wearing new outfits and the new baby is in any way compatible with the new outfit? No. Mother nurses the baby, puts a diaper on her shoulder. You say nappy here, don't you? Puts a nappy on her shoulder, goes to burp the baby. And does the baby hit the diaper? No, all over the clothes. But every mother who loves her child bears the stain because she loves the child. Do you get the picture? It's a glorious picture. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, the hope that one day we'll be like him, the hope that even now when we're not like him, he still loves us. Everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. How does that work? My father was a Marine during World War II. He was in three D-Day invasions in the South Pacific. A year ago, last Christmas, my wife and I went to see where our fathers fought in World War II, and I stood on the very beaches where he came in under heavy fire with all kinds of people dying to his right and his left, and I wept on those beaches. My father was a good man. Uh, He was a strong man. My younger brother and I were both football players. Both of us could bench press 400 pounds. We were at a family picnic one time. He threw a water balloon at us, and we took off running after him. He ran about 40 yards, outran us for that much, but then didn't have the endurance, turned around, grabbed us each with one hand, and threw us on the ground. We said, boy, Dad, would you like some more fried chicken, and could we get you some mashed potatoes to go with that? He was a good man. He was a strong man. He was of that old school where he never said much, you know, I love you. I don't think I ever heard it from him until I was a sophomore in college. But I knew he loved me. It was in his manner and in the way he treated us and so on. One time when I was in my second year of college, he came up and very uncharacteristically of him, put his arm around me, looked at me and said, Jerry, I love you. How do you think I responded? You already know. My heart melted with tears in my eyes. I found it easy to say back to him, Dad, I love you too. And I found myself after that coming home on weekends from college to help him rake the leaves and mow the lawn and wash his car. 
And while I would do that, I started thinking to myself, you know, I could have come home to rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car to try and earn his love. Or knowing he loved me, I could have come home, raked the leaves, mowed the lawn, and washed the car. The action could have been the same. But the motive would have been an eternally different motive. Everyone who has this understanding of God, his great love for us, it begins to affect the very way that we live and operate in our world. I I, I had some students tell me, I said to them, I, I, I don't think in our world we're much good at sharing the gospel with other people. This one student said to me, I think it's because we're afraid of what people will think of us. And I think we should be concerned what people are thinking of us because we don't want to be obnoxious. But I said, if I'm more concerned about what that person thinks of me than what God thinks of me, I'm probably drifting towards a kind of idolatry. People, the thing that should motivate you for anything you do should be this great, great message. The God of the universe knows you. And he loves you. And let everything you do in your Christian life be prompted and motivated by that great fact. Let's pray. Father, we're not good at it. We're not very good at loving you. But we do love you, feebly as we do. And we are so grateful that you make it so easy for us to do. Thank you for loving us. We're grateful. In Christ's name, amen.